This week on Living the Call, join us for part two of Deacon Charlie's conversation with Carl Keating. Carl is the OG apologist and a pioneer of Catholic media. He is a full-time author with 20 books published to date, including his most recent titled 1054 and All That, A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Carl tackle woke ideology and offer a response to it. They also talk college, how higher education today isn't what it used to be, and answer the question, should I push college for my child? Carl stresses the importance of developing an intellectual hunger throughout our lives and suggests practical ways to do that. There's nothing more realistic than Christianity in its approach to what's around us, why we're here, where we're going, and all that. And yet, I think not a few Christians allow themselves to be bullied into silence and inaction, and they shouldn't. This is Living the Call. I was remarking this week, the um, you may have seen some of this, the CEO of TikTok was in front of a House congressional hearing, first time that the TikTok CEOs had his grilling, and there was absolute bipartisan consensus on just detesting this TikTok platform, obviously for very, very different reasons in some cases, but I'd never seen that kind of unanimity, certainly not recently, from a congressional you know, body about how damaging we're now discovering that a lot of that sort of self, self-absorption and time spent in, in the sort of, you know, cult of self can do, you know, damaging individually, physically, psychologically, communally. I mean, everybody was like just chapter and verse on how deadly this stuff was. And what, why I find that interesting is that as we're reaching consensus on this, lurking right behind it. And by the way, we've had social media now for going on 15 years. The iPhone came out in 2007. And so we're now coming 15 years later or whatever to, oh, this is really bad. So on one side, I fear that's a bit late. And then on the other side, I think it almost comical that we're coming to that with social media when in just the last few weeks and months, artificial intelligence has broken free and the implications of that make Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram look like a coloring book compared to what's behind it. So I worry on two fronts that we're kind of past this sort of event horizon. And number two, that the, that the mechanisms of society, government, et cetera, the church, other, other in, you know, instruments of, of what makes us a civilization are so far behind the rate of speed that technology is accelerating at, that even if we wanted to train our attention to everything, we, we couldn't. You know, it, it might be that we need to develop a way to dissociate ourselves or put at arm's length, shall we say, this, the technology that we have. The technology is going to keep advancing regardless. I mean, it's been advancing since the time of the pharaohs, yeah. so it's going to keep advancing. But I wonder if there might be an analog here to what happened with smoking in this country. Mm. I look at I look back at my favorite movies, such as say Casablanca. Yeah, everybody is smoking in Casablanca. Sure. Okay. And uh, they weren't trying to make a statement. It's just something that was done. It was part of society. It was just expected. Basically, when I was young, my, both of my parents smoked. They eventually put that aside. But so did our society, as in large part. Um, 
cigarette smoking is much less of a thing now than it had been 20, 30, 40 years ago. And there became a kind of social stigma to it almost. Um, but, you know, realization that, you know, it seemed harmless back in 1955 when you could see television ads for LSMFT with some doctor there telling you how healthy smoking was. Right. Chesterfield <laughs> is my brand of choice. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then a lifetime later, no, this stuff kills you. you yeah. Know? And, and, and by which time, of course, there've been a lot of examples of people being killed by it. So I wonder if there might be a parallel here where that we can draw that with the technology that we have, that the kind of, in particular, that makes us indifferent to God and his claims and, and, and our need to follow those claims. Maybe there's some kind of maturation that can happen socially, not even at the religious level, but sort of socially saying, we appreciate this technology. It's great stuff. It does much good. But the human being is more than electrons going through a circuit. You know, and there needs to be a proper place for this, but it needs to be held at arm's length. Mm. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. It occurs to me there's a kind of parallel, perhaps, between what happened with smoking in this country in a social sense and the use of social media today where it's occupying people's entire existence. As when, I, you know, when I was young, my parents smoked. Everyone seemed to smoke. And, of course, the movies of that time and earlier showed everybody smoking. I think of, for example, Casablanca, sure. one of the, my favorite movies. And it seems like, seems like everybody in the movie is smoking. Uh, but at some point, for various reasons, partly political, but mainly, I think, social, there was a kind of opprobrium that became associated with smoking. And it became no longer uh, something that was a fad or socially forward-looking. It became especially when news got out, of course, about the, the medical effects, it became something that oh, became somewhat un, un, unacceptable almost in a lot of social situations. And I wonder if there might at some point become a parallel to that with the overuse at the moment of social media, where now there doesn't seem to be any kind of pushback regarding the fact that so many people, especially younger ones, have their faces in screens all day long. Mm. And they can't, they can't even leave the house without holding a phone in front of their faces. But I wonder if at some point there could be some kind of parallel where that becomes uncool, where that becomes unsocial in the sense that, you know, we've all seen it. We go to restaurants, we look at the next table, got six people on it, and throughout their dinner, they're all looking at their phones. And they never once talked to one another. It's crazy. The only, the only person they ever talked to was a waitress. You know? I, I, saw, I saw a woman just this weekend who had one of those baby Bjorns. You know what I'm talking about? The little pouch in the front of her. Yeah. And the child must have been, I don't know, maybe under a year, I would say. And she was texting in front. And look, I don't know if she was attached to her phone the whole day or I just saw her for the second that she used it. But either way, the visual that I got was her texting on her phone, and the phone is directly in front of the infant's face. And the infant, which, of course, she can't see the infant's eyes, the infants are glued to this screen, and she's sitting here texting, you know, thinking she's carrying her child around, walking around. 
And so, you know, the introduction of this is so early. And I, I saw another example in a mall, the strollers that the mall provided to parents who I guess didn't bring one or just as a way to pass the time had a screen, an iPad screen on the stroller, like built no. into it. Yes, <laughs> it was brutal. So, you know, so your point, your point is true. It's like, you know, people are stuck to these things and in all kinds of settings and at increasingly younger ages. Yeah. Now, George Orwell, where are you now that we need you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine growing up with a screen in my face from infancy. Mm. And I mean, it's the equivalent of the milk bottle, I guess. You know, the kid's always grabbing for it. And, uh... Just think what that child will be at age 30. Mm. You know, you know in, a sense, in a sense, what that child will be at age 30 is still a child. Yeah. Because if you, it, you know, cause if you can't get out of that kind of passive life, which is what that is, and get out into the, the world and, mm. and do things and be things and learn things. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's a problem. But I would just wonder, as I said a few minutes ago, whether there might develop an appreciation that it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it took a long time in this, with respect to smoking for people in general to think that there was a problem with it and the, you know, the health problem, but, but more than just that. And uh, maybe, maybe we'll see that. I hope so that we see something where uh, people can get back to reading actual books or going out of doors mm. and uh, taking a stroll, visiting a museum uh, even going to a, a sit-down theater is better than just having a screen positioned like in front of that baby's face. There's this uh, counter kind of uh, movement that's also happening among young people. It's it's relatively small, but I've increasingly started to read more about it. And that is uh, young people's longing to do things with their hands, like working with their hands. Um this at a very interesting time where we've spent the last, I don't know, 40 some odd years convincing everybody that the only option after high school is college. And we, you know, we have a large population of people that are now saddled with student debt and not very useful, frankly, out in the world. Uh, and now increasingly being displaced and laid off by things like AI and more technology. So I wonder if, you know, part of it could be a combination of something to make it uncool, uh, whether those are the health factors eventually, you know, making somebody pay attention or maybe some celebrity deciding, Hey, I'm not going to do this and introducing using the very same kind of thing that drives its usage against it. Maybe something like that. But if that could be combined with other things like this desire that the kids have of, of, you know, that they, they recognize on some level that they are also that they're stuck on these screens and they long for something different. If that catches on, maybe the combination of these things could actually be a, a bomb for this. You know, when I was in school, I'm thinking junior high school in particular at this point, we had automotive classes, woodworking classes, home economics classes, and those are quite various. And I I knew that I'd be going on to college, and I wasn't going to become an auto mechanic, and I wasn't going to become a a woodworker, and my skills in the kitchen were going to be nil regardless. But each of those things was a, a thing that you had to use your hands to do. Mm. It was kind of physical activity. And it took some cogitation about how do, how do I fix this carburetor? We still had carburetors back then. Sure. Uh, how do I carve this bird out of wood? How do I make this souffle that's not going to fall flat? 
uh, it took some thinking in a real world situation uh, for the young people. And I remember taking the woodworking class. I still have a bird that I carved in it. Wow. And, and I found that interesting and valuable, even though I didn't pursue an artistic bent afterwards. Uh, but I think those kinds of classes have disappeared quite they some have. time ago yeah. from, from uh, education. And I think that was a mistake because all the rest of the stuff is at one level or another, other than a PE class, is purely intellective. And there's nothing where you need to use your body in any way. Uh, there's, no, there's no touch sense that's used in, in other classes. And I think maybe those kinds of things were brought back. First of all, they do teach some basic skills, which are good to have, because even a lot of guys nowadays have no idea how their cars run. Sure. And, uh, and a lot of gals, you know, can't do anything in the kitchen, even cleaning the dishes, let alone make, baking something. So there's that practical use. But I think just getting those kinds of courses, and there could be others, where you have almost like a minor in practical life. You know, some people have proposed, for example, have courses that say you can't graduate from high school unless you learn to do your taxes, how to fill out a tax form, how to fill out a job application, basic things like this that just stump people. I mean, that we, we've, we've seen those, those images of young people taking photographs of pay phones uh, that have dials on them, and they have no idea how those machines could operate. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so there's, there's been something lost. Not, not that we need to go back to any of that, but I think there's something lost when you make, have a situation where the mind is basically abstracted in everything it does, and there's no practical down-to-earth application. Well, there's a theological piece to this, too, which is, you know, our faith is a very incarnational one, right? I mean, God could have uh, done the whole creation thing to the extent he even did it. He, he could have done it any way he wanted to, but he did it with the utilization of matter um, and spirit, at least to the extent we're involved. And he could have done it a different way, but he didn't. So that, that tactile piece, that material piece is something that seems much more than just practical. Well, remember, he's fundamental. He, he, he was the he was the carpenter's son and presumably a carpenter himself. There you go. So and he, and he didn't have to take woodshop classes either. He he didn't either. But I, by the way, I remember taking woodshop. I had uh, this almost incomprehensible teacher named Mister Wise who had the thickest Louisiana accent you can possibly imagine. But I remember the the the, the woodshop, and it wasn't that I was going to be a carpenter or woodworker, but there was something about that creative element. And now, to your point, things are increasingly intellectual in nature in terms of the education process and also increasingly digital. So it's like we keep getting farther and farther away from this actual sense of, you know, matter and material. Uh, you, you mentioned cars. I had a conversation with, with a mechanic recently who, by the way, in Los Angeles, that is the career everybody now should want because there are so few mechanics and so much demand. These guys can basically charge whatever they want and they're booked forever. But I was talking to a mechanic and he said, you know, cars and he wasn't like he wasn't an old guy. He was probably in his, I don't know, maybe late 30s. And he was talking about the fact that cars today are essentially layers of material, plastic, mostly uh, over the top of wiring and chips and microchips. And he said, so really what I learned, he was he was saying what I what he had learned was increasingly less relevant. And his entire shop in time would need to be entirely retooled. 
because none of the tools even work for the cars that were made because they're all basically laptops on wheels. Yeah. And it was uh, it was interesting. He ought to he ought to know, <laughs> you know, why do you why do you think those classes went away? I think they became unfashionable. I think that uh, there was this tendency, which has now been pervasive, to think that everybody needs to get a bachelor's degree and that those kinds of courses were only for those who didn't have any intellectual aspirations. So yes. they were sort of dead end things. Yeah. And it wasn't appreciated that those are precisely the kinds of courses. And one can imagine others that, of course, that could have been at the time. Those are the kinds of courses that someone intending to go into the intellectual route ought to take so that he re remains balanced in life. Because you can get so intellectualized that you become good for nothing, literally yeah. good for nothing. You can't yeah. do anything. And uh, you need to have a balance. And so I think that those courses were dropped because of this great emphasis on everybody having to go to college or else high school's the end and, and who cares about you and ignoring those folks. Uh, and, and that was a mistake because as you almost said a few minutes ago, uh, we're getting to see that a lot of young people ought not to go to college, that where they end up anyway, even if they were to go to college and incur a lot of debt and use at least four or five years, would be something they could have gotten to more easily and less expensively by going to a trade school or apprenticeship or something else. Mm. And, uh, and that's even true in a lot of subjects that are of a quasi-digital nature. You, know, you don't need to have uh, a four-year college course to become a programmer. No. You, know, or you just need to, to study the programming language and do your thing. Uh, so... I think it was sort of a one-two punch that, in essence, removed these practical application or physical kind of programs from the schools. Mm. And, and that only uh, made it all the more likely that those who would go on afterwards, whether to college or, or not, would be people who would be stuck just looking at screens all day. Uh, and they never had a chance to see other possibilities. Even if those possibilities weren't what they would go into professionally or avocationally, there were still some things that they could do to balance off their lives so that they weren't purely digital creatures. What advice, Carl, would you give to parents who have maybe kids in high school and who are beginning to think about the idea of post-secondary education? And has your perspective on that advice, <clears throat> excuse me, have you, has your perspective on that advice evolved? I don't know if it's evolved. Uh, most of my advice would be in the sense of encourage your young ones not to go into useless, popular, trendy, woke kind of majors. Uh, on the one hand, because none of them lead, lead to good employment, if that's what you're interested in. but. To me, I've come to see, or at least to have this opinion, uh, more and more that fewer people ought to go to college, mm -hmm. and the colleges ought to be focused more as they traditionally were on the intellectual life rather than on uh, just getting you through with all kinds of classes that, in fact, neither make you a better person nor advance your prospects for employment. 
Uh, but we got to the point where now, well, let me say this. I remember my father was a uh, mechanical engineer at a major aluminum company, and he would have to hire engineers. And he told me only half facetiously that he often would prefer to hire an English major rather than an engineering graduate. Because the engineering graduates all learned engineering a certain way, and it was the wrong way. And he'd have to unteach them, where he could teach more easily an English major. Right. But that kind of thing, I think, is often true. Uh, education now often is miseducation. Yeah. And, yeah. and people would be better off if they hadn't gone through it. Not just better off financially or having used up those years, but literally they've learned things that they need to unlearn. And they need to learn things that once upon a time colleges and universities taught but no longer really do. I'm, I'm, I find myself at that crossroads personally because I've got my youngest is um, rounding out his uh, is in the final stretch of his senior year. <clears throat> and I've had, you know, increasingly a lot less enthusiasm for really pushing him uh, into this sort of four year track. My the, the, the son that's older than him by two years, who was the sort of most recent one prior to him went off to uh, Embry-Riddle to, to be, to study aviation. He is a pilot. Um, and he had a very, he, he knew he wanted to be a pilot since he was 12 years old. My, this last son is much more the, um, the right brain kind of artistic. Uh, you know, he, he draws, he paints, he does music, he, a variety of things. And I think of, he's definitely not a STEM kid. He's not going to be an engineer. It doesn't, he, he doesn't, it doesn't have an affinity for, for it. And I, I increasingly find myself, you know, hard pressed to make the case where a lot of the things that he might need for careers in, um, you know, in the arts or in some other uh, occupation, to your earlier point, he doesn't necessarily need a four year degree to do. And what he does like to do, in addition to the art stuff, is work with his hands. He has a 67 Mustang that he works on on the weekends. He, he uh, His part time job in high school is working at, for an auto mechanic. He works there Saturday from seven to seven. He likes to wrench on things and see how they work. And so, it, you know, in that context, this sort of reflexive go to school, go to four year school, knowing what happens when they get in, they can pick their classes and do whatever. It's it just it's gotten harder for me to make that case where I think of my eldest uh, children and I've got five when I think of my older ones, it was easier to make the case it's like this is a you, you must do. I was in that kind of trap of. This is what happens, and if you don't go to college, there's something wrong with you. I was kind of in that mindset, but but it's but my perspective has evolved over you know those last whatever ten twelve years I think. Well, another thing is that college today isn't the, what I knew as college. There's so much propagandizing within almost every college that I think intellectual and even moral injury results to many students. Mm. Uh, I was reminiscing with one of my sisters on her birthday a couple years back, and it had been you know, 50 years or so since uh, she'd gotten out of high school. And we talked about a couple teachers there, and we both wondered, why weren't these men teaching at a college someplace? They were such good teachers. There's so much that they were conveying in high school. And now as uh, the... The uh, late journalist uh, Joseph Silbern once mentioned, he said, 100 years ago in high school, they taught Latin and Greek. Nowadays in college, they teach remedial English. You, you know, it's you, true. you, yeah. you, uh, and, but it's beyond that. Silbern passed away before the woke stuff came in. 
and it's taken over so many colleges. And you end up becoming a young ideologue, uh, even if even if you want to take STEM courses, you know, it's it's it's, it's intrusive to the mind. And so I think there's there's plenty of reason for not pushing young people into college the way it once made some sense to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you happen to see Carl just making the rounds recently last week or the week before on social on Facebook? I think it was on a number of platforms. A woman who I guess is a young uh, conservative commentator, female, who got put on the spot and asked what the definition of woke was. And she really stumbled to define it. It kind of reminded me of the old, uh, I forget who the Supreme Court justice was, who said the same about pornography. He didn't know what it was, but he could recognize it when he saw it. That was Potter Stewart. Potter Stewart. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but I'm, no, I, I'm, I'm no. okay. Well, it, it's made the rounds and <clears throat> predictively those who might be, might find themselves left of center or, uh, you know, friendly to, to what they view as, as woke. Um, were having a, a laugh at this woman's expense. Um, but they didn't have a laugh at a Supreme Court nominee who couldn't define what woman was. Ironically true. You know, ironically you know. true. So, so it's, it's, it's very selective laughing. It is. The, the yeah. Selective laughing, outrage, all those sentiments are selective mm -hmm. nowadays. But I, I'm curious when you, because you've already used a couple of adjectives when you kind of, uh, you know, try to talk about that, what's going on in, in college campuses and some of the, the, the sort of woke ideology, but what are some of the hallmarks to your mind of what, what you see when, when you hear that term? Uh, one is segregation mm. of anyone who thinks incorrectly. It's not that when I was in college, you could disagree. I mean, I was, I was friends with the disloyal opposition of the, sure. the left-wingers on campus. I, I founded and headed uh, one of the first conservative Catholic newspapers in the country on campus. And I got along fine with folks on the other side, such as in Students for Democratic Society. We disagreed on just about everything. But, you know, we didn't try to shut one another down. We didn't try to say the other person was a bad person for thinking incorrectly. You disagree with me, that means you're a sinner and you need to be exiled. That was, was not the mindset at either end of the spectrum. Yeah. But nowadays it is. So I would say one of the hallmarks of wokeism is that you find somebody you disagree with, that person must be, therefore, a bad person and needs to be segregated out from polite society. Mm -hmm. And so you've got uh, every time a, a fellow student or one of your professors or a visiting lecturer says something that you don't agree with, you raise hell about it because you figure that person's bound for hell anyway. Okay, uh, And that's a very, very dangerous mindset. I don't think it's one that's going to be long-lasting. Yeah. I think... You know, it, like the French Revolution, it went through several phases and eventually it ate its own. It got to the point where there's nobody left to chop head off of except Robespierre himself. So Robespierre went to the guillotine. Okay. It's that kind of thing, I think, with, with the wokeism that now infects um, not just colleges, but journalism, the media of all sorts, uh, even now the medical profession. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. But I think it, it's going to – it has an internal logic – and it's not stopping where it is now. It's got to go to the end of that logic, at which point there will be, a, I think, a great revulsion among people to see where that goes. Uh, and you can think of, of totalitarian ideologies that had the same kind of course. And there was a point where Bolshevism sounded so good 
And yeah, we'd have to knock a few heads, but you know, this is going to really improve Russia and the rest of the world eventually. Mm-hmm. But it had a logic of its own, and eventually, it ate itself up. It ate itself and, up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think we're seeing, you know, initially when all this stuff started uh, blossoming um, and, and, and being named, frankly, uh, as a kind of ideology, my perspective was more that, you know, we're dealing with people who have a particular point of view, but it's sort of in the realm of opinion. Therefore, whoever's got the biggest microphone, i.e. academia or Hollywood or whoever, is probably going to gain the most ground. But I left, but I had it sort of at the area at the level of opinion so it was something that was uh you know not concrete when it started to go in the direction which you rightly point out of science medical and other where people could see something that was objectively true or false and claim the other that's when i really started to get worried but maybe it's exactly that movement into those fields that kind of will accelerate this sort of snake eating its own tail I would hope. I, I would, you know, the parallel historically might be Lysenkoism in, in Russia under the mm-hmm. communists. And Lysenko just had ridiculous theories, but he was politically in favor, in the favor of the leadership. And so he was able to push ridiculous theories that others, for their own health, thought they would have to nod their heads to. But it was just nonsense, scientifically. But eventually they got past that. I think the same kind of thing is going to happen here, but we have to get from here to there and who knows what, what's going to happen already. There are a lot of stories of people high and low who've been, whose lives have been ransacked because of this woke reaction to whatever they do. I mean, you, you could probably list a hundred lecturers who go to campus to say something anodyne, someone in the crowd, uh, uh, disagrees out of usually ignorance or just prejudice and the whole school goes up in flames and the the lecturer is blackballed. Mm. That kind of thing has happened so many times in recent years uh, where there used to be when I was certainly when I was in college, people, all different persuasions could come on campus and speak and they almost never got interrupted. Uh, Occasionally the, some of the left wing students would, hold up banners at the back of the room or what have you. But I don't remember anybody ever being shouted down or being put in such a position that he couldn't come onto campus because of a view that was perceived as unsavory by a certain small clique of students. Any other characteristics or is that the principal one, this sort of segregation, separation, balkanization, however you want to define it? uh, I would say it's a secondary and maybe almost a cause of of the other is an anti-intellectualism. Mm. Uh, woke people, so far as I can tell, tend to be those who, who in, their, in their areas are not as adept or good at thinking as others. And, and wokeism is, sort of provides a way through its uh, strong-armedness of balancing the field, of giving those with lesser intellectual skills a step up where they shouldn't have one. Uh, so I, I see that too. I mean, I don't, I think of people I've come across online or through news reports and all who are in this way and they're promoting these ideas. And uh, I can't think of a single one that strikes me as a particularly astute person intellectually. Hmm. 
even though many of them hold themselves out to be so. And probably have advanced degrees. Yeah, well, sure. (laughs) To our earlier point about what a a college education is worth. I think you're right. I think that they are, you know, a mile deep, but an inch wide in whatever the subject uh, of choice is or whatever their, you know, particular banner is that they want to sort of march under. And I think that that does them a great disservice, frankly. I mean, at the end of the day, we approach these subjects as Christians, and these are people with souls, and they, they have a, a fullness that God has deigned for them that they're not necessarily achieving. And I think that holds true for anybody who has a particularly narrow uh, uh, you know, perspective on something that runs very deep. They might know everything about one subject, but they've never come in contact with something else that might shape that experience. And often such, yeah, often such people don't have a desire to learn about other things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a very extensive private library at home, not as large as those of some people I know, but still a large library. And and I'll sometimes just go through the shelves and see what books I've forgotten about. And I'll look at some, and of course, many of them I've never gotten around to reading, but but I, I sort of mentally kick myself, gosh, why haven't I studied this area more persistently? Yeah. You know, I bought these books about such and so. Why haven't I pursued that? Even though it's entirely different from other things that I may have some knowledge about. Uh, but I have a kind of, I have an intellectual hunger that's not going to be satisfied. I simply don't have the time. You know, two and a half centuries ago, Samuel Johnson said that a young man can make something of himself if he reads five hours a day. I'm no longer in a position to read five hours a day uh, because I'm of an age where I, I, I simply can't focus that long the way I could when I was young, but I wish I could, sure. but, I, but I still would have to live to extreme old age to finish the books on my shelves. And so uh, I have, uh, whereas Johnson had a fear of not being saved, you know, you know, some intellectual quirks that put him in that position. Uh, my main fear is dying ignorant Mm. at least ignorant compared to what I think I should be or should have been by this time. Uh, and, I, and granted, I'm not going to be graded so much on, you know, how well I read Middle Egyptian hieroglyphs, okay? That's, which is something I'm studying at the moment. Of course. But, but, uh, but still, I have a sense that I've not used my intellective faculties as well as I should have. And I feel... Um, that I, I need to focus, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to be too hard on myself uh, because you never get as much done in those regards as, as you might wish, no matter who you are, whether it was Johnson or Einstein or anybody else you can mention. Uh, but uh, I, but going back to the kind of woke thing, I think there's a whole large cohort of people now who simply don't have an interest or desire to know more about things that they've never come across before you know as i say i I didn't take automotive classes i do some things on my own vehicle but i'm not a mechanic not not like your son i I couldn't replicate what he does but i wish i knew more sure you know i wish i had gotten out and wrenched more on the weekends and especially back when cars had carburetors Uh, but uh so i i see those as not just a lack in myself but a kind of failing in a way things i could have done and should have done perhaps but and I think that's kind of healthy attitude to have. We are 
very finite creatures. And we maybe give ourselves airs at times, but gosh, you know, I'm pretty smart at that area or whatever. Well, even if that were true, that area is, is a pinpoint compared to all the other areas out there. For sure. And, and uh, you know, if, if we could sit down with an angel and compare notes, <laughs> there's be no, there'd be no comparison. Be you know? short, we, short conversation. That's yeah. right. So, uh, but I think there are, unfortunately, people who simply don't care whether they don't know about so much. I think I, I think connected to that is another characteristic, which is fear, because I would hazard a guess at your library that you describe, which I can imagine. But I would hazard among the many titles that you've read or perhaps some of the ones you haven't are books that you philosophically, theologically or otherwise don't agree with. And they're somewhere there. And if they're not there now, they were at some point or at least you you read them at some point. Right. This 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 um, confidence in 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 being able to engage in other subjects that may challenge something that we have thought or presupposed. It, it's it's a very to my mind, it's a very it's a very fear based way of approaching reality when there's only, the only comfort that you can derive is by some variation of your currently held position being repeated back to you with ever more volume. You know, it's a good point. I've never myself had that kind of problem because I've always, even from youth, I've always approached that things are true or they're not true. And that reality is the truest thing we have, both natural and supernatural. And we can't lose anything if we learn more about both of those. And if it happens along the way that we have to set aside some opinion or, or understanding that we've had, that's actually a step forward, not a step back. And I don't see anything fearful in that. So if I were to read in some area on which I have no particular background and it overturns some particular apple cart I have, that, does, that wouldn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, actually, just the opposite. It would be sort of exciting to go into something. Oh, I've, I've been wrong on this point. Sure, you found which something. I, yeah. yeah, for all my life. Uh, but it was a point that I just accepted on faith or trust in something or somebody's comment or just on prejudice, whatever the case may be. And I see now that I was wrong and I can move forward. And now I can become a brain surgeon or what have you. Okay. Uh, so, so that has never been an issue for me. But I do think you're right that for not a few people, it is an issue that their their status is such. They're sort of, they, they sort of perceive themselves in a state of disequilibrium. It's mm. like the ball that's almost balanced on the top of a bowl. Mm-hmm. upside down bowl mm-hmm. and any disruption to the position of the ball means the ball's going to roll off. Yeah. And terrifying. Well, of course, but, but if that's the way they perceive their situation to be, then they're going to be very introspective. They're going to be very uninquisitive. Uh, and I think all, all that's the negative for one's personality and for one's enjoyment of life. I mean, I relish learning new things and learning about things that I know that I'll never have time to get into, but areas that, oh, I didn't even know that thing existed as a topic of intellectual discourse. And wonderful. So I can appreciate that sort of abstractly from the outside without ever having 
a chance to go into it. But there are people who who really think that, you know, if they turn it any other way, they're going to find out that two plus two doesn't make four and they're afraid. And, and, and maybe the solution to that is what gave you your, you know, you said you started off with a foundation of what's true is true in the natural and supernatural. Well, those are the very things that are now in certain cases in dispute, right? So if I don't start from that foundation, I end up at the top of that inverted cereal bowl pretty quick. Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess the question of epistemology, which is the, the science of how we know, I'm comfortable in saying and living that we can know and we can know true things, and those true things cannot be other than what they are, which is true. And then we can take repose in that. We can be happy with that. And then we move on to something else. So we keep adding truths in the bag that's over our shoulders. And as we go through life, we gather more and more truths in whatever area it might be. And yet there are others who, thinking that there is no truth, um, even relative truth, let alone absolute truth in any, in any sphere, their stacks are always empty. They're walking along with nothing on their backs. Uh, and then that's got to be a, a very disconcerting sure. way to live. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned earlier when we were first discussing um, my experience at the meadow and being out of doors and just appreciating, but there are people who can go out there and for them, they're not sure if what they're seeing in, in the wilderness is actually there or not. Mm. They're not sure whether it's a phantasm in their minds. They're not sure whether they can know how a tree grows or whether it grows. They're not sure, uh, you know, if the pyramids were built by Egyptians or by extraterrestrials. You know, they're they're unsure about everything, and they they can't close their minds on anything and then move ahead. Mm. And it's not a healthy skepticism. It's really it's sort of a it is a dis a, a disequilibrium, right? So it's it's this idea that if I reach too far in that direction, I might fall off and. Who knows what the where the bottom is, and it's it's it can be terrifying. What Carl? What advice? What thought? How should a Christian respond to some of these things? What is our what's our response? Well, I'd say before our response, there needs to be some preparation. You need to get your own mind in order if you want to share any part of it with somebody else. Uh, and so, a Christian needs to be as well first as well read as possible in in many things, not just in Christianity, but in all aspects of life. Uh, and we can all do that to some degree. And then uh, I think when you are dealing with folks, the, the sort of I've been alluding to, of course you need to approach them charitably, but you also need to not let yourself get pushed around intellectually. Mm. And you need you need to be able to say, you know, some things are simply true and some things are false. And and there's not, on these things, there's not a we can't know answer. Yes, we can know. And such and so, whether it's a moral issue or a social issue, purely intellectual issue, whatever. And I think one of the problems that Christians have, many nowadays have, is they're not, I don't want to say pushy, forthright enough in reacting to 
claims or attitudes or techniques that at root are anti-Christian because they're anti-reality. There's nothing more realistic than Christianity in its approach to what's around us, why we're here, where we're going and all that. And yet I think not a few Christians allow themselves to be bullied into silence and inaction. And they shouldn't. Is the, uh, is, is the silence a, a, a byproduct of trying to be sort of more pastoral? What's the, where, where's the silence come from? Yeah. Well, partly fear, partly, you know, for example, uh, it's, it's often said, I think with a lot of truth, that American bishops' first desire is to avoid controversy and in whatever it is, whether it's priestly assignments or standing up for a doctrine of the faith or what have you. Uh, and and there's there's a kind of uh, institutional or corporate uh, holding back that is evident in many places, but especially maybe is noted nowadays in the church. Uh, and that usually doesn't work to anybody's advantage. Okay, but it keeps things quiet in, to some degree, right? And I think that that kind of attitude is manifested in a lot of individuals. Uh, they just don't want to cause a ruckus or be mm. in a ruckus caused by somebody else. Mm. And, and it might be partly that they don't know how to respond, how to engage, because they don't know their stuff in this area, which is why you should learn more. Um, and, you know, yeah, you, you can go back to my book, 1054. You know, the purpose of that, is, as I said earlier, was to get Catholics especially interested in learning about the history of their faith, history of their church, because... First, it's just interesting. It's a fun story. Sure. But also because there's utility in it. You can make use of what you learn in a lot of different ways. And I think just learning history, whether Catholic or secular or what have you, you learn a lot about human nature. And that that gives you a kind of confidence in dealing with other human beings today on whatever that matter might be. Uh, you know, if you if you have a sense of what makes people tick, uh, today or a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. That gives you some leg up, I think, when you're trying to deal with somebody who's taking a position you know is wrong, but you don't know how to begin the conversation. Mm. Something tells me that when we uh, take our last breath and we're in the presence of truth and love and justice itself, that saying, I didn't want to make a fuss is probably not going to go very far. <laughs> you yes, know? because re because remember the one that we'll, we'll be, we're being judged by at that moment, he made the maximal historical fuss in human history. Amen. Okay. You know, so, uh, yeah, uh, courage is not one of the chief virtues, but nevertheless is a virtue. And we we need to buck ourselves up at times and, and, and be willing to be a little uncomfortable mm. when we're trying in dealing with others around us, you're realizing there will be a kind of discomfort for us. I mean, I'm not a person who likes to get to the squabbles, but once in them, I don't mind being in them and pursuing sure. them to where they need to go. I don't look for trouble, but I don't run away from trouble either. At least that's my intent. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that, the average Christian, especially the average Catholic, will be more inclined to think about what his or her role would be 
in not just explaining the faith, but in other aspects of life too, uh, living out the faith, uh, even if it causes discomfort for himself or, or for some others. Well, we got to get our house in order first, for Indeed. sure. Yeah. Carl, here's what else is clear. We could talk for another five hours, I'm sure. You know, you ought to write a book. <laughs> yes, maybe I should. <laughs> uh, add to the 20 that you already have. But al- alas, we, we've got to get going. So um, before we get to our final segment, wait, what? Carl, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with the audience. I mean, you touched on a couple of things that you're already maybe noodling on or working toward. But what else are you thinking about beyond 1054? And how can people follow what you're up to? Uh, I'm not so sure how people can follow what I'm up to. I mean, I'm often on Facebook, for example, so they could follow me there at, at their leisure. Uh, but I have several book projects in the works. I hope to finish in about six weeks the last in a four-book series on hiking and backpacking. Uh, one of those books already has been out a while, and I've written two others that have not yet been published. I need to finish the fourth one. Mm. And uh, and then so I'll have four independent books, and the then there'll be a fifth omnibus volume of those. And the series is called How to Fail at Hiking. And uh, the whole, my whole Great title. Uh, approach to this is we learn two ways. We learn through positive instruction. Do this, do that, follow these 10 steps, you will succeed in whatever it is. But we learn equally, maybe more, from observing our own and other people's mistakes. So the four constituent books are an introductory one called how to fail at backpacking. Mm-hmm. And then three that are specific locales, how to fail at hiking Mount Whitney. That's the book in print already. How to fail at hiking Yosemite and how to fail at hiking Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll get those out soon, but I'm also working on some others. I mentioned Samuel Johnson a few minutes ago. I'm working on a book that'll be a kind of daily inspirational calendar kind of book where every day of the year there'll be a quotation from Johnson, who's maybe my favorite writer of all time. Mm. And then a rem- remark by me about that. And then an opportunity for the person to reflect on his own. So uh, that one's called day by day with Dr. Johnson. Love it. Yeah. I'm working on one that uh, I've had a lot of fun with. I just got the early parts done. You know, I'm very interested in things editorial. I've been in publishing and writing and editing for many years now. And I want to write a book about how to write a book and how to edit a book if you want to do that on your own. And I needed a different angle. So what I have done is I'm I'm putting this book in the the voice of Mrs. Malaprop. Mrs. Malaprop is a character (laughs) in Richard Brinsley Sheridan's play, The Rivals, which came out in the the mid-1700s. And it was a romantic comedy. And Mrs. Malatop was a spinster lady, matron, I guess. And her name was a made-up name. But it's coming from Malapropos, from the French, which means not quite appropriate. And so uh, Sheridan, the the playwright, puts in her mouth words that are almost right but are not. Mm. For example, she, she talks about visiting Egypt and observing the allegories along the Nile. Well, she meant alligators. Okay, that kind of thing. So I've got this book about how to write well and how to edit well your own work. I've got it in this 
18th century woman's voice so that I can say things that would tick off many people today, especially younger ones. Oh, nice. Who think they have to write a certain way. Cancel fodder. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, I think it's going to work pretty well. So I've got that in the works. And then, and then later in the year, a bigger project is I'm putting together, I hope, uh, before the year is out, a three-volume, actually four-volume set, of a beginner's guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. Oh, nice. Well, well there would be three independent books, for one for each canticle. So it would be, um, the titles are Dante's Inferno in 30 Days, Dante's Purgatorio in 30 Days, Dante's Paradiso in 30 Days. Then those are combined in an omnibus, which is Dante's Divine Comedy in 90 Days. And uh, I'm looking, really looking forward to that because I think it's, a, unfortunately, a classic that is not just obscure to many people nowadays, but something that they simply don't approach. You know, they don't get it anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. It used to be, as you'll remember, even in high school, we would read maybe some of Dante, but we'd read some of Shakespeare, maybe sure. even some Milton. But now most students get through college They've heard the name Shakespeare, never read him, have no idea who Milton was, and only know from Dante that he sent people to hell. Otherwise, no familiarity. So I'm I'm hoping to overcome some of that with the Dante series to get people interested in him, because not only is, is he, I think, the most important poet of all time, but he's so precisely a Catholic poet that, that you, you can, have your life turned around by literally turned around spiritually, mentally, intellectually by reading Dante. Mm. And so I'm hoping that series will help people go in that direction. By the way, one of the richest ironies of recent weeks was the fact that Google named their AI platform Bard. And yes. I, was, I was remarking on uh, what percentage of its users have any idea that that might be an allusion to Shakespeare. Probably few. Probably few. Probably few. Well, Carl, th- thanks for giving me my Lenten reading for the next five years. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> I've got some uh, work cu- cut out for me. Um, but what a great privilege to have you come on the show. You've been such a great um, inspiration to me personally. You've been somebody who's formed me uh, in so many uh, different ways through your writing and through your, uh, your apostolate and your ministries and all of your different work. And so uh, really, I, I, I have a, a deep, deep, deep gratitude for everything that you've done and continue to do. Uh, and thank you for spending so much time with us today. There's so much here. I have to put out a multi-volume set of episodes, but I don't think people will be complaining. Well, we'll find out whether they complain, but Troy, thank you for having me. I mean, it's been a delight to have this kind of conversation. I don't often get the opportunity to blather at leisure and uh, having this longer format is actually a delight this kind of blather is welcome anytime carl but um but yeah thank you very much for 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 that all right carl so are you ready then to play wait what no but let's go on all right so now knowing the truth and falsehood would be a prominent part of our discussion i formulated three questions for you Two of them uh, involve uh, true or false kind of, uh, you know, dichotomies here. So the first question, Carl, which of the following statements is false about one of your instruments of choice, the mandolin, which we didn't talk about, bring you back on to talk about that. So which of these is false 
about the mandolin. Is it A, the mandolin was first developed in Italy during the 18th century? Is it B, the mandolina cantabile or liuto cantabile is the 10-stringed bass variant of the mandolin? Or is it C, just like a cello, the mandolin is typically played with a plectrum? Which of those is false? Well, I have never seen a cello played with a plectrum. I'm not saying it's not done ever, uh, but I've not seen it now. I can say that because when I was in fourth grade, I took cello. We had the option to choose either violin or cello that year. And I didn't want to be like all the other students choosing violin, so I chose cello. That was a big mistake because I had to carry this instrument, which is almost as big as I was, <laughs> a mile to school and back every day. And so I gave up after the, I think after a semester. And that was too bad because I didn't come to music then until much later in life. So I'm going to say uh, C because of the plectrum issue. And you would be correct. Now for us mere mortals, Carl, what is a plectrum? A pick. A guitar pick, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah although, although, although Mandolino often will use something that doesn't look much like a guitar pick. It looks almost more like a like a feather. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I play or have played mandolin and Baroque mandolino, which is more like a lute. It's a six-course rather than a four-course instrument, each course having double strings of the same tuning. And uh, especially for the Baroque mandolino, which is historically a precursor to the mandolin, uh, you use something that doesn't look too much like a guitar pick, but a guitar pick works fine. Well, predictably, you are starting off batting a thousand. So here goes question. Okay, let's 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 stop here while I'm ahead. Stop and move on. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Question number two, Carl. Now I know your wife is Japanese. Am I correct about that? That's correct. All right, and you've spent some time in that country. So which of these statements is now true? So now we're looking for the true one. Which of these statements is true about the land of the rising sun? Is it a in Japan? It is considered impolite to blow your nose in public? Is it B, Japan has a national holiday called Lake Day, which was established in 2009 to encourage people to appreciate Japan's natural aquatic beauty as seen in its various bodies of water? Or is it C, Japan is home to over 14,000 islands, including four main islands and numerous smaller islands? And I know... By the way, I know I said that we're looking for the true one, um, but that is actually a typo. We're still looking for the false one. So let me, I'll give them to you just really quickly again. We're looking for the false one. So which is false? In Japan, it's considered impolite to blow your nose in public. Japan has a national holiday called Lake Day, established in 2009. Or Japan is home to over 14,000 islands, which is false, not true. Well, A actually is true. Because if you need to blow your nose, you need to sort of turn aside and, you know, hide behind a bush or something like that. Okay. So so that's true. Uh, the the uh, Lake Day, I don't know about mm. uh, because uh, perhaps because I haven't been to Japan in several years and I missed the news. So I'll have to just take a pass on that one for the moment. And um, as far as the islands go, Japan does have a lot of islands. It depends on what would one would count as an island, perhaps. Uh, I mean, they're, they're the four main islands, uh, but uh, 14,000 other islands. 
Uh, sort of reminds me of hiking in the High Sierra, where one of my favorite lakes is called Thousand Island Lakes. Mm. And actually, I, I took a, um, a Google Earth view of that and counted the lakes. There are actually only about 100. I counted the islands of this lake. Uh, there are only about 100 pieces of rock sticking up in the middle of this lake. So Thousand Island Lakes ought to be called Hundred Island Lakes. Mm. So there's a bit of a discrepancy. So I'm going to say 14,000 islands in Japan. I would call, I'm going to say that one's false. And, there, and even if it's true, it's false because uh, I, I get to decide what counts as an island. I, I, you know what? I think I'm going to give this one to you anyway because I screwed up the, uh, the, 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 the questioning part of it. Now, what I have is, um, so what I have is the, as the false answer is, uh, number two question, uh, Japan has a national holiday called Lake Day. They do have a Marine Day, which takes place every third Monday of July. And when they show gratitude of the blessings of the ocean, et cetera, et cetera, they do not have a Lake Day, at least not that I could find. So that was the one I intended to be false. Now, you are right also that Japan, up until very recently, counted 6,852 islands. And the way that they do it is they count coastlines of 100 meters or more that were shown okay. on paper maps. But just last month, Carl, just last month, the Geospatial Information Authority of Japan announced that the number of islands had been updated to 14,125 through a recount using digital maps, still using the same 100 meter rule i guess so sure. technically that one is also correct although like i said i'm still going to give it to you so you, mm, or but, at least you, but, you get a half point but of course there's another possibility here charlie tell me if they now see twice as many islets they're kind of the other side yeah if they're twice as many one possibility is that the ocean level is Declining, and those things have come to the surface oh, for the first time. Oh, interesting. See, see? Yeah, there you go. Uh-huh. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it All to right. you. All right, so here's the final one. You're guaranteed to get this one right, because this is a first of its kind, Carl, a poetry fill-in-the-blank question that touches on one of your other pursuits and perhaps passions, which is flying. So here goes. You're going to complete the poem. In the cockpit, high up in the air, sits a private pilot beyond compare. He flies with skill, with precision and care, with faith in his heart and a prayer. For this pilot is Catholic, devout and true. His love for God guides him through. As he soars through the clouds with a heavenly view, he feels the presence of the divine like... Well, this is a tough one. You would be too easy, so that's not it. It's got to have a you sound, who sound. Uh, give me the last stanza again. For this pilot is Catholic, devout and true. His love for God guides him through. As he soars through the clouds with a heavenly view, he feels the presence of the divine, like... Like it's true, but that doesn't. <laughs> there you go. But, but but that doesn't scan. No, it's got it's, it's got too many. Because you're already using true. Well, yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah, 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 yeah. Ah. Uh. You can also just you could do a whole new final sentence if you wanted to. No, how about like a U E W E? Like a U sound. 
Nice. Very nice. <laughs> there you go. So, He's a farmer pilot. Yeah. So, well, I have to say, I'm not coming up with whatever the word is that you're looking for no, in this. Not, no, no, no. There it's, is no. It's a blank. It's it's a blank. No, and, but you got so you got something in mind that would be. Well, I didn't do that. Apropos. Just so you know, I actually had AI generate this poem quickly for me on the fly. So it it, it proposed so it, like. So this this is what Bard proposed. This is what Bard proposed, and, okay. and I didn't ask it to give it to me in any particular style. I just said, "Come up with one for a Catholic pilot." It did. Okay. So um, I think it proposed like the do or something like that. That doesn't make any sense. It does. But I, I was tr- actually I was trying Bard for the first time just last night. Uh huh. And and uh, it came up with some useful things for me. I was saying, give me a list of the gear I need to hike with in Grand Canyon. And some of it was accurate, some of it was wrong. <laughs> I know more about that than it does at this point. Sure. But uh, I have not yet asked it to write poetry. Uh, but I don't know whether my poet friends would actually count that piece as actual poetry. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm going to rather, rather than doggerel. After we get done, I'm going to run to my uh, screen and ask it to give me, you know, sort of a, a, an ontological argument for something in the voice of Carl Keating. Let's see what it comes up with. Oh, you'd, be surpri- don't do you'd, be, you'd be surprised. It, it's, it's, I've actually tested it with, uh, you know, voices and styles, and it's, uh, it's pretty, uh, you know, does a serviceable job of, of doing that. You'd, you'd, uh, you'd be surprised. Oh well, I fear that because I, I know that unfortunately. My voice is quite distinctive. Mm. It's not a good, I know it's not a good voice, but I do know it's distinctive. I remember once many years ago, uh, I attended at that time a parish in Old Town, San Diego. Mm. And uh, Old Town State Park was across the street. And it's the most visited state historic park in California. So in the summers, it gets scads of tourists. And many of them would be Catholic and come to this parish for Sunday Mass where at that time I was working as an, as an usher. And we'd have to cram people in the pews like sardines and still people had to stand. But after mass, people would repair to the parish hall for coffee and donuts. And in between the two was the rectory. And on one Sunday after mass, I stood on the porch of the rectory talking to the secretary. And I was sort of in the corner of my eye, I saw people passing back and forth from the church to the hall. And there was some guy who was stopped there. He seemed to be looking at a guidebook or something. But then he, after a moment, he came up to me and said, are you Carl Keating? He said, I said, yes. He said, this, I remember. He said, I'm Joe Kablaki. That was his name from uh, going upstate New York town. I'm forgetting. Buffalo. He, yes, Buffalo. Named Joe Kablaki. And he, and he said, you know, I've never seen a picture of you, but I recognize your voice from radio. Wow. And I, and I thank you, Joe. I said so. But, but later I said to myself, oh, good grief. That if, if he can recognize my voice from this little exchange, I must really have a weird voice. You know, so, so but, but, you know, so it goes. There's worse things, my friend, for sure. No, the voice is distinctive, but... You also have a style, which is kind of what I was referring to, because it, it doesn't yet replicate actual voices, but I'm sure that's a moment away. Yeah, yeah but what I, what I mean is that if my voice is distinctive like that, for Joe blocky it would be distinctive for Bard. Sure. And, sure. and and Bard could easily replicate it and put things online, and everybody says, oh yeah, that's obviously kidding. No one else talks like him, saying this ridiculous stuff. Who else would have, who else would have uh, done it? Yeah, you know, what am I going to do, have to leave the country? <laughs> I think all of us eventually will have to. 
Carl, what a great privilege. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome back, obviously, anytime. We've got uh, scads and scads of topics we didn't even touch that uh, I'm sure you could provide a lot of depth uh, and understanding around. So really appreciate you spending some time with us. Well, thank you. As I said a few moments ago, this has been a delight for me. I don't often get a chance to talk at leisure and arm's length, so to speak, uh, on a wide variety of things. Uh, so we, we've we've covered a dozen different topics. And uh, yes, there are many more we can talk about. So I look forward another time to taking care of another 12. Absolutely. How's that? How's that? That works for me anytime. Okay. All right. And, and if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time for you to subscribe to Living the Call, to follow the show, to share this episode. I mean, these episodes, there's so much here with, um, you know, a number of uh, of, of likely uh, and worthwhile um, you know, prospects, uh, and you'll figure out who they are, but, but share the show, share this episode, give somebody an opportunity to come into deeper contact with any of the subjects that we've discussed, whether it's hiking or comedy or history or, you know, current events, um, uh, do that and, uh, they'll be better for it. And we'll see you again next time on living the call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.